Welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond, and this is a show where we make it easier for you to get out of your comfort zones. Now, under the auspices of transparency, this is about the 21st time I've tried to record the introduction for this podcast. I always just hit a little bit of a block partway through, so hopefully this one goes okay. Today on the show, I'm having a chat with Chris Cooper, who is the founder of Two Brain Business, a mentoring business for, for gyms worldwide. And the cool thing about Chris, and one that I can definitely relate to at the moment, is that he makes a lot of mistakes. In fact, he's, he's proud of all the mistakes that he makes. And he makes them quickly, and then he learns lessons from them. So I'm, I'm sitting in a place at the moment where I'm very much relating to him after 20 different podcast introductions. Unfortunately, I haven't seemed to have learned as quickly as, as he did. Well, anyway, Chris and I today talk through his backstory, kind of where he came from, how he's got to where he is now. We talk through some of the mistakes that he's made, some of the processes that he uses for dealing and working through those mistakes, some of the big lessons that he's taken from them. Uh, we talk about mentoring, what makes a good mentor, what to look for in a mentor yourself. And we talk about his new book as well, which is going to be out very, very soon, if not now. So I really encourage you to grab that. Before we kick off, if you want to support the podcast, I would love it if you just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like this episode, share it out with your mates, tell your mum about it, tell your mate that is looking for a mentor at the moment about it. And if you're on your podcast app still, make sure you leave us a rating and review. It helps these ideas get in front of more people, into their ears, into their heads, and hopefully helps them step outside of their comfort zones. Well, Intro 21 was definitely better than the last ones. I don't know if it's my best work, but this interview is, so make sure you enjoy it. Thanks, guys. Chris Cooper, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thanks for taking a little bit of time to sit down and have a chat with me today. It's my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you to Anastasia for putting us in contact. I very much appreciate this. Chris, I usually like to start things off just with asking where you're from, like where were you born, where did you grow up, and were there any kind of formative experiences in your youth that have, have kind of put you on this path and, and led you to where you are today? So I was born Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Uh, we're pretty, we're in kind of northern Canada, and I spent my childhood on an island called St. Joseph Island, which is a very beautiful, picturesque, you know, small island of about 3,000 people. It's amazing for cycling. You know, it's mostly maple trees, so right now the whole island is orange and gold and red. And yeah, I grew up on a farm. Uh, both my parents were teachers. My mom was a highly sought professional administrator in the school board. My dad was a different kind of teacher who just taught what he loved. So I, I tend to do more things like my dad, but he was the real farmer too. And so, you know, how to be a professional and how to teach to a large audience really came from my mom. How to work hard and go outside at 6 a.m. And, and feed the animals when it was minus 30, that really comes from my dad. You know, so as far as formative experiences go, like really both parents were working professionals, which meant that when I got home from school, my day was not even close to done. I would have to start doing, you know, barnyard chores. My sister and I would usually make dinner and we wouldn't see my parents until 
you know, the evening. So there's a lot of independence growing up. There's a lot of freedom to explore, but there's also a lot of work. So kind of freedom and independence, but coupled with the responsibility as well of helping out with the household and kind of making sure that the animals got taken care of as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I look at like how my, how I'm optimally focused now, it's usually when I have freedom with parameters. So I know, for example, that I need to write an article on affinity marketing tomorrow and I can write anything that I want, but it has to be done by tomorrow. And I've only got an hour at 4am to do it. That's where I operate best. And I'm sure it probably become, it's because of that upbringing. And so this 4am time slot, I'm assuming that's the beginning of your day rather than the yeah, end of your right. day. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't learn that on the farm. I learned that uh, in my career as a personal trainer. You know, we always lived 30 minutes outside the city, my wife and I. And so if clients wanted to start training at five, I had to be up at four, you know, and my morning routine was down to the minute. And now that I no longer do that, I still find that I'm most focused and undisturbed at 4 a.m. And so I usually get up at four, start writing by about 4.15 and go straight until breakfast at 6.30. Interesting. People are going to ask, yeah. though, what time do you go to bed to get up at four? <laughs> as soon as I can. <laughs> I usually try and get a 20-minute nap in. Um, I have offices in different places. This is my home office, but every office I have has a couch in it. So I usually have about a 20-minute nap. And then my service to my community is that I volunteer to coach kids almost every day. So I'm usually coaching them until about 8 o'clock or so, and then I'm in bed by 9. Okay. Nice, nice. So you're still you're getting a, a good chunk of sleep in there as well. Yeah. One one other thing that I want to explore with you, mate, is that I mean, you said that your dad taught what he loved, and what did that look like for him? Was that a wide range of subjects, or was that something that he kind of worked on for a while, or and then shifted to another area, or how did that look? So he was a college teacher, and he started teaching college when he was 21 years old. So he was you know three years older than his students. So what gave him the authority to teach wasn't that, you know, he was this old man carrying this, you know, long experience. What gave him authority was his passion. He loved teaching forestry and he loved teaching fish and wildlife. And, you know, I I would carpool with my dad a lot when I was in university. And sometimes he would have to wait for me for five hours, you know, after he was done teaching and before my classes finished. And that was fine with him. You know, quite often his students would come to our forest and they would make maple syrup or they would cut wood or they would hunt or whatever, you know, and he just loved it. Cool. When he retired, he didn't want to. In Canada, you retire when you hit the 80 factor, which is your age plus your years served as a teacher. And he hit his 80 factor when he was still really young and he did not want to, he didn't want to finish. And Chris, I mean, what, what led you to the physical training kind of career pathway? That's a great question. So I I played sports as a kid, but not well. I was always the worst kid on any team. I still liked it. And then one day in high school, a friend of mine and I had this really weird lunchtime and nobody else in the whole school was off during this period. And so he said, I want to work out, but I don't want to go in there by myself. So you're going to come with me. And so we started working out and, you know, within, within a week, like my confidence shifted, you know, and it was all I could talk about, all I could think about. And within a year, two years, I was a completely different person. You know, maybe not physically, but mentally. And so, you know, I went from this kind of hyperactive, but unhappy, you know, kind of wimpy, unpopular, nerdy kid to, hey, I can look at people in the eye and talk to them now. 
you know? And so when I went to school, I thought that I was actually going to take forensic science. So I was taking a lot of biology and chemistry. And my first day of university, two of my friends told me that they were in school to be chiropractors and that they were taking a course called athletic training. And I said, wait a minute, like this is a thing and switched my major the first week. And I, I think my, my incentive was always just, you know, give people what I got from physical training. And a lot of them went on to become chiropractors, physical therapists. And yeah, I went, I went into training instead. Interesting. What do you think it was about the physical training that gave you the confidence and, and changed, changed the way that you saw yourself? Well, you know, I don't think it was anything overt that I really recognized as the time that where I could say, oh, that's it. But, you know, I was usually the smallest kid in my class. Often I would have the highest grades in my class. And, you know, my mother was a teacher. So I would be like, you know, the teacher's pet sometimes, which I did not like. And that doesn't make you the most popular kid, you know. And then over the years, that that affects your confidence. Like, you know, all the all the skills that I had were internal. So some physical training kind of gave me just a little bit more confidence to talk to people, you know. I, I wasn't thinking that I was going to wrestle anybody. But I, I think anybody that's listened to this podcast who who grew up without exercise and then found exercise, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm quite lucky that I have always sort of been able to move my body and kind of played a sport from a, from a young age as well. So it's, um, sometimes it's interesting to kind of wrap my head around that because it's always been sort of part of my life. But as I was talking to you about earlier, there was a period probably in my, in my twenties where I wasn't exercising as much as I, as I had been, well, when I was at high school, I just pretty much played every sport that was on offer. So I was consistently kind of exercising and moving and stopped in my stopped in my early 20s um and I think that was and now I exercise not as much as when I was at high school but definitely much more than when I was early 20s and I think you're right in, in regards to the kind of confidence that it gives you even if nothing else is going well I can go out and I can move my body and I can just enjoy how that feels as well as kind of getting the the mental benefits from going and doing this as well and the, the release of endorphins and even neuroplasticity stuff that's going on as I'm challenging my body in this way, which is really cool. So you got into the physical training area. You went and worked as a, as a personal trainer after that or what was the, the path from there? Well, I mean, the path from there was really taking any job in the field that I could find because there weren't many then. And, you know, in a couple of places, I thought I was going the right way and I was actually taking a different job. And so I was Yogi Bear for a while. And then I wound up at a ski resort and a local fitness store was advertising that they needed a salesman. I said, well, this is still not what I want to do, but it's a lot closer than selling lift tickets. And so I took a job there. And that's how I actually met a few people who needed training. So their parents would bring them into the store and they were all teenagers and they would say, we can't find anybody to train our kid to get better at sprinting or playing soccer. What can you do? And all I had was this parking lot behind the store. And so I took a shopping cart that somebody else had stolen and I cut it down and I made it a weight sled and we would do sprints and burpees and stuff behind the store after it closed. And I started to build up a clientele that way. And then a local gym said, well, you can use the upstairs part of our gym as long as your clients buy a membership. So my clients would pay the gym $40 a month or whatever it was. And I had 2,000 square feet of AstroTurf to myself. 
it was amazing. And of course they went bankrupt, you know, less than a year into that because that's, it's too amazing. Mm -hmm. And then I got scooped up by another training facility in town and got married. We bought a house. We were having a baby. And I one day did the math and realized that I could never earn enough as a personal trainer, that I'd have to go on my own. But around that same time, some of my clients were approaching me about going on my own and investing. And so they were actually offering. So I was kind of forced into it. And, and that was a very uncomfortable position. I just kind of went along with them because I don't like saying no to people, you know, and, and basically backed into owning a business because we went out for a tour one day to look at potential spaces. The owner of the gym where I was had no idea that I was even thinking of going on my own. And the realtor who was showing us potential gym spots went and told the gym owner where I worked that, hey, Chris is leaving. And so as soon as I came back, he confronted me with it. And I really didn't have a choice at that point. I had to go. Yeah, it's an awkward situation to be put in. Um, totally. What was the first three months of starting out on, on your own like? First three months is scary, but you don't really have time to think about it. You know, so you're, you're worried the first three days, am I going to get paid on Friday? Because we need to eat. And then you're worried, am I actually going to be able to pay this rent? Like it's, it's $600. That's so much money. And then you're worried about, you know, am I going to get any new clients? But you know, th those worries are all so minute that you don't have time to look around and say, can I really do this for 30 more years? Right? You just hustle and you grind. It's really when you get to that three to five year point, when you start to really get uncomfortable, because now you're working 14 hours a day. You're not making more money than you were two years ago, and there's no end in sight. And so that's that's when things really start to get awkward for gym owners, and usually that's you know the stage they're in when I meet them now. And that's uh, quite a nice segue actually into the, some of the stuff that you do now with with Two Brain. Mm -hmm. So I mean, how did you obviously made it through that three to five year period and have have moved on from that? But how did you come to to start off Two Brain? Well, around 2008, I was three years into owning the business. I was very close to bankruptcy, extremely burned out, and it just kind of hit bottom and said, like, I would be better off getting a $12 an hour job at a call center than continuing to do this. And at the same time, I found a mentor, you know, wrote a check to the mentor that should have bounced and started turning my business around. The way that I learned, Chris, is by teaching. And so knowing myself, I said, okay, I'm going to, Everything this guy tells me, I'm going to write it down somewhere. And uh, so I started a blog called don'tbuyads.com. And I wrote on that blog every day for about four years as my gym was getting turned around. And then eventually it got some readership, which is you know another story. But I got invited to speak. And the other two speakers were like legit. They had very profitable gyms. And I was just kind of this scrappy guy who had come up from the bottom. And I knew that they were going to show up with handouts and you know, paper stuff. So I said, well, I, I can't even afford to like print off copies of my best blog posts. But what I could do was upload them to a self-publishing site and have those books shipped to the gym. That was a lot cheaper than photocopying. So I did that with about 30 copies, had it like a hand-drawn cover. I call it two brain business because the left and right hemispheres of your brain both have to be working together, just like the systems in the care of your business. You know, showed up with this photocopied book, basically had like no page numbers, there was no editing, there was a part two, but no part one. And now that's the best selling fitness business book of all time. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Once you'd spoken, once you'd given out these books, what was the next step for you? 
Um, nothing too immediate. And, and honestly, I showed up with 30 books and probably left about 25 of them on the floor of the gym. But I continued to write. I continued to get some notice. I volunteered for a few writing jobs with CrossFit Inc. And the people in front of me in line, my supervisors just kept screwing up. So they'd get fired and I'd be the only one standing there. I'd get promoted, promoted, promoted. Finally got jobs working for CrossFit and writing for them and then serving on their foundation board. We've been close ever since. Uh, I've been doing a lot for CrossFit Inc. That's been extremely helpful. I was approached by a website company and they said we want to start a mentoring service in 2013. The guy that we really want to do it backed out and you've got a book. Do you want to do it? I said, yeah, you know, and they were going to give me like $100 or something per client. I said, boy, it sure be a lot of fun to do this, you know, every week for an hour. You know, five years later, Two Brain Business has 20 mentors. We're on every continent. It's a multi-million dollar worldwide corporation. And yeah, it's all about mentoring. That's an awesome story, mate. When you started, like when you when you showed up, did you have, I mean, not the specific end goal, or kind of partway goal in mind, but did you have like a vision and a direction that you wanted to pursue? Or was this, here's an opportunity, let's just go for it. I was thrilled and pretty overwhelmed to be mentoring other gym owners. And uh, I really, at that point, didn't have a sense of how I was doing in relation to everyone else. You know, I knew I had the book. I knew I had some like templates and stuff that people could use that I had developed. But at that point, I didn't understand the need I didn't know that people actually needed help as much as they did. And this is a very needy niche. There are very few gyms, like a tiny, tiny percentage, less than 3% that are actually doing really well. You know, luckily I learned that late. And then I didn't actually have a vision for how important this was until um, the software company decided to change direction. And what they were going to do then is just shoot videos of me and sell them. And I was kind of against that because that's never worked for me. Like, you know, having a mentor is actually what saved my business. And so I wanted to mentor people. And so we split over that decision. And now my mission is to mentor a million entrepreneurs. I think that in the new economy, entrepreneurship and micro business is really what's going to save all of us. And I, I just want to share, you know, what was done for me with a million others. Very cool, mate. And like mentor is a topic that I think about a reasonable amount at the moment um, and actually had a, had a big discussion around that yesterday. Like in your mind, what makes a good mentor? Well, you know, what two brain means is like a balance between the logical and the empathetic mind. And so a good mentor bridges the gap between data collection and objectivity uh, with, you know, empathy I've been there before, here's what it's going to feel like, and trust, you know, a good mentor has to have been through what you're about to go through. I think that's super, super important. But they also have to be distanced far enough from the problem that they can kind of see the whole picture and say, okay, looking at this objectively without the lens of emotion, here's what you should do. What makes a good mentee? So the person being mentored? That's a great question that, that I've been trying to solve for a few months. So we still do a free call with anyone who would like help in whatever business. I've done over 2,000 of these now. You know, and it, I pay for the call. Like I've spent 40 or $50 calling places and they never signed up as a client. And now that, you know, we book 10 of these calls every single day, I can't do them all myself anymore. So, and we don't invite everyone to mentorship. So the rest of my team needs me to say, Chris is a great client because, and so, so far what I've come up with basically is like, they've been through some stuff. Like, you know, they've tried something 
they have an emotional reason to succeed now. Okay, like they're tired of trying to figure it out on their own. Uh, somebody else is depending on them to succeed because we're going to need that emotional anchor. At some point, I'm going to have to say, Chris, if you don't raise your rates, you're taking food off your child's plate. You know, usually if we laugh on that on the intro call, that's a great sign. And I, I also need to resonate with why they're in this. If you know, opening a rock climbing gym is just something they thought was cool and they're 22 years old and like, you know, their future doesn't really hinge on this. They're probably not a great fit for us. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, because it's that two way relationship, it needs to fit for, for both parties. And there are probably, there are people out there that don't need a mentor currently, whether it's in business or in, or in life or kind of aren't at a point where they're ready for a mentor. But there are people that kind of at, at that point where they're struggling a little bit and as you say, they've tried some stuff and it hasn't really worked and it hasn't kind of got them to where they want to, to be or even started them off on the, on the pathway. Do you have some advice for them about how to go and kind of search out for a mentor in an area that they want to, to be working on? Yeah, well, I've got a story. So Chris, like if I can't give you a very specific answer, I'm going to give you a story instead. You know, November 2016, I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life. Two Brain was growing organically, and I thought, you know, I really don't have to work this hard anymore. You know, I can just be done. And the next thought that entered my mind was, you're going to blow it. You need a mentor. If you're thinking thoughts like that, you're going to throw it all away. And so I started thinking like, okay, where am I going to find this mentor? And I went to a speaking event with my wife a few weeks later, and there was a guy on stage, and he was kind of an opening act for Gary Vaynerchuk, Seth Godin, and he loved doing CrossFit. And he went to a CrossFit gym, and I happened to tweet or Instagram or something that I was at this event. And uh, this guy's CrossFit coach saw it and texted him. His name is Dan Martell and uh, said, hey, there's a CrossFitter in the audience. He's the CrossFit business guy. You should meet him. And so, you know, I can't remember how Dan got my cell number, but he started texting me. My phone was dead. And of course, it was six hours before I got his texts. You know, just in general, and I'm, I'm not one of these like, you know, fluffy, put it out to the universe and the universe will respond guys. I don't believe in that. But what I do believe is that when you're open to mentorship, different mentoring options are going to appear. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I think once you're ready, once you're open to, to the stuff, actually your awareness of those opportunities that are out there, it just grows. I mean, like you can kind of sit there in your bubble and there's opportunities all around you. And kind of once you learn a bit of stuff or once you once you become ready in, in some way, then all of a sudden you see these opportunities that were there beforehand, but you just didn't have that that awareness around them. Exactly. Very cool, mate. I want to talk. I mean, the the stuff that you have been through with Two Brain and with your with your career as well, the, that generates a reasonable amount of stress and discomfort with all of these challenges <laughs> that that go on. Uh, maybe not more than other people's stuff but like I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day and you and you talked about leaning into stress and leaning into discomfort and I don't know if you would use the word embracing it but that was kind of that was the picture that came up in my head can you talk around that a little bit and and about how you do that and how you think about it yeah well early on mentoring gyms I realized like you know if I overplay my hand here and try to make people think that I'm a bigger success than I am that that's going to be impossible for me to sustain for long right it, it, it's like 
It's like lying almost. I think that's actually pretty common. So what I said I'm going to do is I'm going to go completely the other direction. I'm going to be completely transparent, tell people that I totally screwed it up 50 different ways. Here's how I screwed it up. Here's what you can learn from it. And if nobody wants to hire me, then that's the risk I'm going to take. But if people do hire me, they're going to know exactly what they're getting. And that transparency has really allowed me to be a lot more free with the stuff that I share. So that's the foundation of everything is radical transparency. Now, as you grow in business and in life, uh, what's going to happen is that you're going to constantly be encountering new situations that you're not trained or equipped to handle. Okay. So for example, you know, when, when I became a mentor at other gyms, that was uncomfortable for a while, but I quickly realized that I could help people. When I became a mentor to other mentors, that was a completely different skill set. And that's, you know, where I am right now. But I'm completely transparent with my team. And I tell them that I am not scared to work with powerful people. And that at this level, we need radical transparency. So if I'm being a bad leader, I need you to tell me that and I'll stop, you know, and, and if if you have something to teach me, I need you to just teach me that. And what's happening is, well, entrepreneurs refer to the two to $5 million mark sometimes as like the valley of death. You know, for the first time, you're hiring people and paying them more money than you've ever made in your life. And you're hiring specialists who know more about the subject matter than you do. And you're hiring a managerial layer and you don't have your fingers in the frontline service anymore. So, you know, when I started going through that myself, I told everybody on my team, like, this is where we are. This is what I'm trying to learn. I'm going to screw it up. Like, I'm going to be bad at this because it's my first time. And that's that's bought me, I think, a lot of patience. You know, we do have an amazing mentoring team. They're very powerful, very smart people. And giving them the, the opportunity to say, Coop, dude, you shouldn't have said that has been big. And I'm watching a lot of other businesses who are, you know, in that valley of death, two to five million-ish in gross. I'm watching them totally stagnate because they're, they're not sharing, they don't have that transparency on their team. Everybody's looking at the one leader guy and saying, you know, what's he going to do? What's he going to prove? And they're scared to make a move without him, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's almost kind of trying to disassociate your sense of sense of self and sense of self value from kind of any outcome that, Hey, I'm this person. This is, this is who I am. Actually, whether this succeeds or fails, or both at different times doesn't affect who who I am and that sounds like the confidence that you have with kind of that separation does make it easier for you to to embrace those those challenges and, and those stressful situations or have I got the wrong end of the stick on that no you're right Chris but I, and I'm just you know I haven't thought of it that way before but I think what makes me comfortable with that separation is that I have an amazing team mm. and you know, even if I do something wrong at this stage, the team is so incredible that the business isn't going to suffer. You know, mm. like it's, I can't really hurt it much anymore. I mean, there are, there are certain mistakes that I could make, but they're very empowered. They're very bright, very experienced, and they would probably stop me before I did anything too stupid. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Chris, you have put together a couple of other blog posts and turned them into a book as well, mate, that uh, you've got coming out soon. Or was there a little bit, yeah. uh, there was a little bit more to this one? Yeah, so the new book coming out is called Founder, Farmer, Tinker, Thief. And after years of mentorship, and I mean, you know, mentoring six to seven hours every single day, working with thousands of business owners, not just in the gym, gym industry, but others, what we found is that 
there's a lot of business advice out there, right? Like there's more than enough. The problem is that it's not always good for everyone and it's never always good right now. That knowledge is not the answer to most entrepreneurs' problems. That you know, having a clear path, a step-by-step process is really how you solve problems, right? And that's what mentorship is. But you need different mentorship at different phases. And so we, we've broken the entrepreneurial life cycle into four distinct phases called founder, farmer, tinker, and thief. In the founder phase, you are doing everything all by yourself. The type of mentorship that you need basically is start paying yourself and get the hell out of the founder phase. The farmer phase is different. You're not doing everything, but you could do anything. So you have trouble prioritizing or identifying like what your best opportunities are. Uh, you're hiring staff and you're you know making the mistakes that go along with that. Tinker phase is really like where you know the public ideal of the entrepreneur lies. You know we're all wearing designer jeans and t-shirts and making millions of dollars. And you know Gary Vaynerchuk would be like Tinker phase. And then thief phase is basically when all the building is done, you know, your businesses are self-sufficient, you've got good partnerships, and, and you're thinking about your legacy. And that's really when you're thinking, like, what's my real service here? How can I make sure that what I leave behind continues to give and continues to serve? That's a fascinating way to look at it. And I mean, with the, the stuff that I'm doing, it's definitely in the founder's phase at the moment, right at the beginning of it. So where can I get your book and where can everyone else get your book? Uh, it'll be on Amazon and Barnes and Noble very soon. So I said that my first book is Two Brain Business was unedited. Uh, the first versions didn't even have page numbers or a table of contents, and it sold 20,000 copies. And that's cool. This book is going to be professionally done because I, I feel like I have a real point to make this time. You know, giving somebody advice in tinker phase, which is, you know, split your income into 70, 10, 10, 10% and put this much toward building a you know, a cash flow asset and this much toward a legacy contribution. Like when you're in the founder phase, that's bad advice. Mm. <laughs> when you're in the tinker phase, it's great advice. So what I want to make sure that we do is give you like the right advice at the right time. And that means that I have to have an editing team and I have to have a publisher that will say like, this is bad. I don't understand it. You have to fix it. You know, so this book has taken a very long time to write and hopefully by November 1st, it'll be in bookstores. Awesome. I'm looking forward to, to having a read. Chris, I've got some questions that I ask everyone towards the end of our chat. And the first is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? Yeah, so I would say I just did a, a Grand Fondo for the first time, which is a 100-kilometer bike ride. And it wasn't uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable because I wasn't sure if I could do it. But it was really uncomfortable because there's a lot of social pressure on me as a CrossFit gym owner to do CrossFit. And to finish this race, I knew that I would have to not do CrossFit for three or four months, not show up at my gym, and ride my bike and train. And I was excited to do it, but I was also very wary that this – put me in an awkward position with all the members because I'm saying to, you know, hundreds of people, CrossFit is the answer. You can do it. And then I'm not doing that. Right. Mm. So what I did, you know, I was very cautious to explain to people how CrossFit had prepared me to train for this and why I was doing it, but it was still socially. Yeah. Interesting. And what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? And why is that uncomfortable for you? 
We have three seminars, the UK, Germany, and France within 48 hours. And I got a request to do all three. We decided we were going to do all of them. One of my mentors in Europe is going to run the German one. But right now, myself and two of the mentors on our team, we have to figure out how to finish a seminar in the UK and then get to Bordeaux before we run a seminar the next morning. So between five and about 5 p.m. and 8 a.m. the next day, we have to go from London, England to Bordeaux. We're not sure how we're going to do that yet. So that that's a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, I can see why they would say uncomfortable. And I mean, Chris, we've talked about some of the strategies already that you use to approach uncomfortable situations, but do you have any other ones? Yeah, so I think the, the best one is that if something goes right, that's great. But if it doesn't, it's going to make an amazing story. And mm. So, you know, the, the tactic of just being completely transparent from the start has kind of given me the opportunity now to screw up more because if something happens and we get stopped going into France and, you know, you know, we're late for the seminar the next day, it's going to make a hell of a story. You know, I'm going to tell that story for the next five years and people are going to love it. It's going to get into a book, even if it makes for a very uncomfortable and awkward situation. And I have to apologize to my French hosts for 24 hours, I'm going to learn a lot from that and I'm going to teach a lot. So it's going to actually give me value over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that as a strategy. And I mean, everything's, it's still uncomfortable in the moment, but uh, you look back on it a month later and you're like, man, that was, that's going to push me forward in a way that if everything had gone right, it wouldn't have kind of had that same sort of impact and generate the same amount of momentum for me. You know, clients have even brought this up recently and there are other you know, consultants in the fitness space. There always have been. And a lot of the reason that people choose to brain is because we're completely open about our flaws and our mistakes. And uh, if, if somebody isn't, if it looks like they're perfect, then you're suspicious of them, right? What are they hiding? So luckily I make mistakes faster than anybody else. And so I've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> nice. Chris, a couple of quick questions left for you, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, to connect with me today and, and share some of your story and some of your advice with, with me and, and with the audience. But I also want to say thank you as well for all the work that you're doing and helping other people create their success as well and and just sharing all your mistakes with them so hopefully they don't need to make them themselves and they can they can learn from things a, a little bit quicker i really appreciate that mate if people want to find out a bit more about you if they want to read some of your stuff listen to your podcast where's where's the best way that they can do that if they're a gym owner, they should go to twobrainbusiness.com because all of that, we, we publish every day on multiple channels. And our goal is just to help people. So if you're a gym owner, twobrainbusiness.com is gym specific. If you're not, if you're an entrepreneur or you just want to make some progress in your life, twobrain.com is the site to go to. And you'll be prompted to take the founder, farmer, tinker, thief test there. And everybody is always interested and inspired by the results. Yeah. Final question for you, Chris, is do you have a challenge sure. to leave us with this week? Yeah. So this is one that I picked up from Tim Ferriss when I read The 4-Hour Workweek. And when he was having trouble doing things that made him uncomfortable, like getting outside of his comfort zone, what he would do is just go to like a bar with his friends or go somewhere and just lie on the floor. And, you know, everybody would look at him like, what is that guy doing? But he said what was really ridiculous was not his behavior. It was that everybody would think that that behavior was ridiculous. Like he was just lying on the floor. And so he said it made him really uncomfortable. He's actually a pretty introverted person. And so first he would do it for 10 seconds. 
laugh at himself and then notice like it's forgotten three minutes later and then he would do it for three minutes and then for five and then for ten so the way that you introduced the show i thought chris was perfect where you're saying like you you slowly build up to broadening your comfort zone and i think one of the very first things that you can do is something that's not socially unacceptable but just socially different like lie on the floor at a restaurant yeah that's a nice challenge chris cooper thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today Uh, It's it's my pleasure, man. Thanks a lot for doing this. I think this is a fantastic podcast and I know your audience has to be getting a lot out of this. So thank you for your service too, Chris. Um, My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. There you have it, team. I hope you enjoyed the chat today. Sorry about the intro. Sorry about the outro. This is my third go at recording this one as well. Dunno, just not on my game today. Um, But thankfully I was when I was talking to Chris. So hopefully you took as much out of that conversation as I did. If you're a business owner, if you're in the process of starting a business or if you're kind of working your way through owning a business and developing it, I definitely encourage you to grab Chris's book. I think it'll be super helpful for you. If you want to support the show, as I said, make sure you share this episode out with people who are looking for mentors at the moment or people that you think will get value out of it. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a rating and review. That'd be super helpful. If you want to grab a PDF document with five of the top strategies that I have stolen off people who I've interviewed over the years to help you get outside of your comfort zone, head over to getoutofmycomfortzone.com and you can download it from there. Before we wrap things up, I just want to thank Jailan. Thank you so much for all the editing you do, mate. Thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music and thank you especially to you guys for tuning in getting through the intro, getting through the outro. I will see you all again on Friday. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with Chris and I today.